Resigned to her perch in the sky, Gaira watched her children. The storms and rains were no longer in her control, yet they continued their havoc on Earth. The heat that lived in the molecules, of which there were too many, started to warm the planet. Gaira wondered how long it would take. Watched a world set to a boil. First, the heat of the molecules began to melt the ice that lay upon the Earth's crown. The newly freed water soaked up coastlines, claimed them as new ocean. Meadows lay bleached beneath the same sun that once fed them. And yet her children carried on as before. They reset expectations. The years went on and crops began to fail. Some burnt to husks in the heat. Others, surrounded and set upon by the molecules of which there were too many, pitched their leaves close for protection, as if reaching for the sky, as if trying to get away. No fruit was born of these crops. No grain harvested. The first to die were the animals born and bred and destined for slaughter. Fields of beasts turned into fields of carcasses that lay tipped onto their sides, mummified in the sun and dirt. Once all the beasts and birds that had once been caged had perished, her children tried to live off the land. But there was not enough land left. Amidst the flooded fields and beastly skeletons, her children looked up and cursed the skies. But Gara remained silent as her children's stomachs burned. Too late. The hunger flooded their bodies and lived in their every thoughts, until hunger was everything. Gara looked away, as the children of Earth began to eye the girth of each other's calves and the meat left on each other's bellies with animal urgency. They ate things not meant to be eaten. Gara sat quietly on her perch in the sky. They were still her children, but for the first time she wasn't sure she wanted them to survive. She was no longer sure they didn't deserve what was coming. This has been your early morning gospel of Gara, Olithros three, the years of hunger. May we tread lightly upon the earth today and every day henceforth. It feels too soon for night to have ended. My face is taut, and I've managed to wring myself up into the bug net. Confused, it takes me some time to untangle, to untwist my arms and waist and roll off the bed. The stars are still suspended, but the words of the morning gospel begin before I can reach my lek box, before I can plug it into the wave box, before I can churn out my morning gospel along with everyone else. Defeated, I lean my head out the window, fold my arms over the sill, push my knees up against the wall. I inhale the gospel with the cold air outside. As the final words of the gospel ring out into the street on the north and the hallway to the south, I am back on the bed, prone, face down. I don't remember moving away from the window. Sleep comes in a second wave, my lek box still sitting, unplugged, on the floor beside me. When I come to, the sun has long risen. I will be late, but if I don't go down to the river for a quick wash, everyone I encounter today will regret meeting me. After I rise, I check myself for bug bites. It would explain the dreams, but I find none. Then I head out to bathe, but bring nothing, so I don't have to pay the little satchel watcher. 
The river bank is a little less crowded than the day before. Stragglers, like myself. The extra sleep has made me feel groggy. Without thinking, I walk into the river with all my clothes on. There are a few curious looks, quickly averted. Suddenly, a flash of rain comes down on us. Lightning stalks with thorns. The river and the rain blend together like we live underwater now. Most people leave the river, and soon I am almost alone, bobbing up and down, kicking against the water's pole and the occasional fish, gasping for air through the wall of rain. When I finally get out, the rain stops, and I wring out my dirty clothes as best I can, wring the smell of the dead woman out onto the river bank. Then I put them back on, bearably damp. At my return to the hotel, I wave at Ilsa and start heading towards the dining room. You'll have to hurry! She calls after me. The dining room is empty, and I'm glad Jinli isn't there. At the table of offerings, I fill my plate with fish and berries, avoid the unknowns, sit down, and devour as much as I can. The food makes today seem less like a dream. But just as I am about to dig into the second half of my fish, I can hear Jinli's voice coming from the cooking area through the big window. His voice is getting closer, and it's a morning of not thinking too hard, so I pick up the remainder of my breakfast and make my way to my room, obscuring my plate from Ilsa as I pass, big, innocent smile on my face. Back upstairs, I sit on the floor and stuff the fish into my mouth. It's quiet, comforting, to eat in a safe place away from everyone. A few gentle thuds outside my door. Then there is the same scratching sound as from the night before. Curiosity and fear tug at each other. But in the end, when the scratching doesn't stop, I put my plate down and get up to investigate. Slowly, I open the door. Before me, a black round creature. Two golden eyes with misshapen pupils look up at me. Then a dash of black as it runs past my ankles. Before I can do or say anything, the small animal has located my plate and is helping itself to my breakfast. What are you doing? The animal pauses briefly. Its tail curls into a hook like it's considering its motives. Then it returns to my fish, and the last two bites disappear into its mouth before it jumps onto the table by the window. A dark sound emanates from its neck, half growling, half choking. The animal doesn't seem to be dangerous, just hungry. I step closer. Looking down at the tiny creature, the growling choke gets louder, and it nudges its head against my arm, its giant black ears laying flat against my skin. It's very soft. What have you going on? But just as soon as the little creature has decided to befriend me, something more interesting appears in the window. Suddenly distracted, the animal turns to look outside, its eyes turning almost completely black, its flanks wobbling as if climbing a narrow bridge. Without warning, it jumps onto the windowsill and launches itself from the second-story window. Gasping, I stick my head out after it. But when I look down, the little black growler just looks up at me, immensely pleased with itself, as a black bird, shimmering in purple and turquoise shades, dangles from its mouth. It turns away and trots out of view. My clothes are mostly dry by the time I finally make my way up towards the law office. 
I'm hoping Kane will cut me some slack for being late after making me wait with the body as long as he did. But when I arrive through the doors and walk in, I can hear he has other, more urgent issues to contend with. I told you I don't know where it is. Ronan Kane sounds exasperated. When I get closer, I can see that he is addressing a man standing on the other side of the big entry desk. Kane has positioned himself right behind Baldy, who mans the front desk, and I slowly make my way to stand next to him, like I've been there all along. I have to get it back. The man is visibly distressed, his face red, his hair tufted, his shirt rumpled like mine. And I told you, we don't have it. It wasn't there. It had to be. The man is screaming now. I need it back. She will notice. It has bluestones. Sparkly. Very expensive. What's going on? I whisper under my breath to the bald man, still seated at his desk, with Kane and I standing behind him like he's our defender. The dead girl was his mistress. He whispers while scratching his chin, as if to hide his moving jaw. Apparently, he gave her one of his wife's expensive stone bracelets, and now he needs to get it back before she notices it's gone. I look back up at the man, whose face is continuously changing from red to purple and back again. Look, he says and takes a step closer to Kane. I know the mayor. We're very close. If you don't find that bracelet and find it soon, I will see to it that you're expelled from New York. Kane looks unimpressed and signals to two of his deputies that are standing a short distance away, waiting for direction. Glances are exchanged. The man is leaned onto the desk with curled fingers, his knuckles turning white beneath his weight. Kane, right? I will have your fucking head if you don't find it. For a moment, I think he's going to jump at us, maybe try to flip the desk. The two deputies move in closer, and Kane nods. Where were you last night? A dark chill in Kane's voice. The same I experienced yesterday, when we first arrived on the scene. How does she make you feel? Are you accusing me, you low-life piece of trash? The angry husband turns, realizing he's being cornered. Then in a low menacing voice to match Kane's. You find that bracelet, you piece of shit, or else. The man shoves the deputies aside and barrels through the doors to get away. Shall we go after him? One of the deputies asks Kane, and I recognize the voice from the night before. The guy, who accurately assessed neither myself nor the woman on the wall, would be going anywhere. His face is narrow, plain brown eyes under a tall forehead. I don't like him, I decide. No, let him go. I say we pay the wife a visit, see what she has to say. My guess is this isn't the first time he stepped out. The bald man shifts uneasily in his chair. Is that going to be a problem, Cleto? Well, it appears that the dead woman is only his girlfriend when he's here for business. The bald man says, his residence is about an hour north of here, so if you want to go see the wife... He trails off. Shit. Kane looks at the two deputies. One of us will have to head up there. Let me think on it. Kane turns to me, shrugs his shoulders apologetically. 
I'm sure people up north are far more polite to their law. I don't disagree. Kane leads me behind the desk through the door he appeared out of the day before. It occurs to me that I haven't actually been inside the offices. So how did you identify her? I asked Kane as we walked down a sparsely lit hallway. Cheating husband comes in frantically, tells us his girlfriend has gone missing, that it looks like there was some sort of struggle at his hotel, and he's worried. He opens a door and leads me into a small room, spanned almost entirely by a dark wood table. Anyway, we realized that no one else had gone missing as far as we know, and so we let him take a look at her body. He nods his head to the back of the building, presumably towards the morgue. The guy starts freaking out, crying and screaming, and we're thinking he's upset because his girlfriend is dead. But really, he was just upset because she wasn't wearing his wife's bracelet anymore. Apparently, he hadn't intended for her to keep it. Nice guy. I sit down in one of the chairs opposite Kane. Yeah, that pretty much has been my morning. He gives me a look, but doesn't ask me where I've been. I don't offer and start pulling apart the folder on the table. Are these the sketches? I pull out some of the paper covered in charcoal drawings. Yeah, we need to go over the details, write a report. You know the drill. He says, almost as if reminding himself that I'm not completely new at this. Got it. Are we going back to the scene? Interviewing the guy who found the body? I had one of my deputies visit him this morning, but he's sticking to a story about the lost mother. I don't think he had anything to do with it but I'm having one of my guys trail him for now. Hmm, I say, as I pull the medicine reports from the folder and lay them out in front of me next to the sketches of the room. Nothing too exciting there. She'd been drinking, apparently, but otherwise, she wasn't with child? I interrupt. The protruding belly from my dream pushes into my thoughts out of nowhere. Kane leans back, a strange look in his eyes. I don't know. Why? The medical reports don't list her as fertilized. I rifle through the pages. Half the report is empty. Why is so much of this missing? I turn some of the pages over, checking for notes. They said it was hard to assess her completely. Kane shrugs, folding his arms. I get the distinct feeling that he doesn't like being questioned, but too bad. Well, can't they check chemical levels in her blood? All her blood was drained. He says, his tone curt, like he hadn't already thought of this. But we know where it ended up. I slowly put the report back down on the table and look at him. He lets out a low grunt. I'll have them test the blood samples from the floor, but they might not be clean enough. They might not even be hers. Kane has one of the deputies run the samples to the medicine office across the street for chemical testing. After this, we pour over the sketches of the scene in silence. She is in almost all of them, staring up at the sky, still asking for help from someone up there. Her womb splayed open, the color of her skin deathly pale against the charcoal lines that trace her body. After hours of looking and seeing nothing new in the drawings, I rub my eyes and sit back. Kane is staring at the ceiling. We're missing something. He says, then looks at me like I know what it might be. I shrug at him. We stare at the ceiling together.
You know, I could go for one of Jack's beers. Kane says with his head leaned back, not looking at me. The medicine office won't get back to us until later anyway. Beer sounds good. The face of the slaughtered woman, her pleading expression, haunts me every time I close my eyes, and I feel like I'm focused on her so much I can't see beyond. Maybe beer will block her gaze and spark some sort of inspiration. We leave the paper scattered across the table and leave the office. A short walk later, we enter into the bar and a sparse group of early afternoon drinkers falls quiet when they see us walk in. You're very popular, I see. I grin at Kane, who turns around and looks at the men behind us. I'm pretty sure they're looking at you. We walk towards the bar, where Fanny waves to us, busy cleaning glasses in a bucket. A tall, equally wiry man comes over to take our order. He is handsome, and I notice he has the same dark eyes and windswept hair as Fanny. Two? He asks, and Kane and I both say yes. What exactly did you do, Rose? Kane says quietly, curiously, as we both wait for our mugs to be filled. They're really staring you down. Glimpsing over my shoulder, I eye the group of men as they give me their most menacing looks. I may have had... I murmur back towards Kane after turning back to the bar. A difference in opinion with one of their friends. Ah... Kane says, and a wide smile spreads across his face. You were the deputy who got her gun stolen. I got it back. So I heard. Kane chuckles. Considering this is such a big town, I didn't realize everyone was such a gossip. I hiss at him, but now a low laughter is creeping through his body, gently shaking his abdomen. It's not funny. The guy was a creep. But now, it's taken a hold of me, too. Jack fills our mugs and gives us a strange sideways glance as we chortle into our beers, trying not to look back at the men mean-mugging us. I see you guys started before you arrived here. Jack smiles at me, but I quickly turn away before Kane can notice, and Jack skirts off to the other end of the bar. Didn't all the poor sub do was try to buy you a drink? Kane swigs from his beer. I said no. I heard you said more than that. I burst out in a laugh that sounds like a loud pop, and some of the men behind us startle. It feels good to laugh after staring at those drawings all morning. It even feels good that Kane is poking fun at me for losing my gun. The memory of the woman's face blurs a little. It makes me feel like I can talk about her killing. So, does this kind of thing happen often? I ask Kane, What kind of thing? Drinking in the middle of the day? Murder. He seems to consider this for a while. It does, but not a lot. Two, sometimes three a year, but generally no more than that. The beer goes down easy, and I signal Jack for another round. I've never seen one before. A dead body? A murdered body. Just doesn't happen in Stalford, that kind of thing. Well, it almost did, didn't it? My mug is halfway to my mouth, and I stop. Kane looks like he's been caught red-handed, like the question slipped out on accident, and stares at his beer as if the beer is to blame. 
So you know about that. Kane sighs. Yeah, I know who you are. I was in the Constitute back then. I wasn't there to arrest your father, but I was in the same department. The same one that ended up taking down the entire cell. There was an entire cell? Kane pauses, as if he isn't sure he should go on. How much do you know about what happened? Not much. I take another sip from my beer. My mother sure shit never talked about it. And then she left once my tax was paid off, so I know about as much as the next guy. Kane nods at this, slowly, as if he hadn't expected this, then decides to fill me in. There was a cell, yes, he finally says, and I realize this is the first chance I've ever had to find out what happened. What happened the day my father was arrested and sent away for life. So it was an entire cell of true believers. I wonder out loud, begging Cain to go on. Yes, of true believers. Cain relents. But not just in Stalford. They were all over the north. The beer is sweet, and it's going down easy. If Cain wasn't telling me these things, I would have stopped drinking. But both our glasses are already empty again, and before I can even signal, Jack has filled them once more, with the same smile in my direction. This time, I smile back. He tried to kill me. I say matter-of-fact, once Jack walks off. I heard about that. It's in your file. Well... Not exactly that, but the investigation number is linked in your relations. That can't be good. Kane shrugs. Unless someone knows what that case number is, I doubt they'd even give it a second look, or make the effort to look it up. Besides, it's not you. It's just your father. He's right, I realize. I'm Prudence, through and through. Are you still in touch with your mother? I shake my head. I don't know where she is. Ever try and find her? The new mug of beer is frothy and even more refreshing than the last. No, I figured she probably didn't want to see me. I think I reminded her of... Yeah. Kane interrupts and rests his chin on his upper arm to look over at me lazily. His eyes are so blue. I look away. I don't want to mix the good with the bad. When my mother looked at me, she saw my father. She avoided me even before he was gone. She had hated him long before he went away. And when he finally was put away, nothing changed. I was still home alone most of the time. When he was gone and I was no longer afraid to leave my room, I tried to get my mother to spend time with me. She had had me for a reason, I figured. And what reason other than being with me, could she have had. So I would be waiting for her the moment she got home, and she would listen to my stories as long as it took her to warm two dinner plates and fill her glass of sharp-smelling liquid. Then she'd go down the short hall to her bedroom she'd once shared with my father, and I would follow her with my short steps and my stories, all the way to her bedroom. Every time, she closed the door in my face, and I'd stop my story mid-sentence and slink back to my room. Once, I tried to starve her out, take away all my affection, uncomprehending that anyone could live in total isolation, in total not caring. I lasted two weeks. 
I'd hear her come home, hear her make dinner and her drink out in the yard. I'd listen to her bedroom door closing. Not once did she check to see if I was home. Just left out half the dinner on the table, and I'd always eat it, too hungry after eating nothing all day to resist. The first night I was back, standing by the door to her homecoming, after her two-week time off for my affections, there was a disappointment in her, like I'd failed her somehow. After that, I tried to bother her less and less, until my seventh birthday. After she got home from dinner, instead of going to her room, she came to mine and said, I need to take you somewhere. It was my birthday, so I thought it'd be somewhere good. She led me to Prudence's hut next door and told me to wait for her there, that she'd be right back. I should have known something was wrong when I heard the barn door open and close out in the backyard, the twigs cracking somewhere from behind me in the woods. But I waited until sunset. Then I waited in the dark. She was my mother. She had to come back. Eventually, Prudence almost fell over me on her way to the bathroom toppled over my tiny huddled body slumped against her front door on her way to the outhouse. A frozen bundle she hadn't asked for, looking up at her with sea-green eyes, red from crying. But Prudence didn't get mad at me, just gestured for me to wait in the hut while she went to the bathroom. When she returned, she said lots of things to me, more words than anyone had ever said to me all at once. Mostly, she said that it wasn't my fault that my mother had a lot to deal with, and that she may or may not come back, but that she'd make sure I was taken care of until that day came. I liked Prudence for talking to me. My mother had taken me to a better place. We should probably make these our last, if we want to do any more detective work today, Kane says from somewhere far away. Harper, you still in the United States of America? You sleep with your eyes open or something? He laughs quietly, trying to get my attention. I snap back into the present, the bar hard against my knees as I jolt. What? Yeah, definitely should be our last. He laughs again. What, are you a lightweight or something? I want to tell Kane of my dream, of hanging on the wall, pregnant to popping. But instead, I change the subject. So, what about you? Where did the famous Ronan Kane grow up? I can tell he's flattered, but that he doesn't want to show it. And it's not like I don't know the story of the street-smart Kane, raised in an orphanage, who then white-knuckled his way to becoming the best lawman in the entire country. Nothing exciting. I was born and raised in Boston. Then I did three years at the Constitute, deputy for five, and then I got to be sheriff here. He's a bit younger than I realized. Why would you leave the Constitute? That's like the dream. It's my dream, but I don't tell him that. All the best law ends up at the Constitute. The only downside is that it's located in New Haven, the swampiest of all three cities of the UCOA. But it's a small price to pay to work for the most renowned law office in the country. No one starts at the Constitute and leaves. Unless, of course, you're Ronan Kane. There was a lot of good at the Constitute. Kane swirls his beer in his mug, his third mug that is already half empty. But there were also things I didn't agree with completely. Takes a lot out of you, working there. Hmm. 
I pretend like I know what he's talking about. Sheriff Kane! Both of us turn to scan the bar. Sheriff Kane! The young woman at the door is holding her hips, her chest heaving under her heavy breasts. Right here. He waves his arm over the crowd. She walks over to us, still panting, parting through the crowd that's accumulated over the course of the afternoon. I try to find you at the law office. She gulps, exhales her mouth wide. But they said you'd be here, so I ran. She takes another minute to compose herself, fluffing the large amount of hair that flies around her head like a fiery explosion. We both stare at her expectantly. I have the results from the blood. Rose, meet Minu. She's in charge of our medicine office. Nice to meet you. Minu ignores the leering glances of the men around her and pulls up a chair so she can sit in between Kane and I. You were right. The blood tested positive for pregnancy chemicals, but there's more. She holds her breath as if to prolong the suspense and Kane's eyes flicker with irritation. It wasn't just one. What do you mean? Kane's voice is even, but I can tell he doesn't like this. The blood, most of it was likely from the woman you found, but there were trace amounts from someone else, another woman. How do you know they were both women? I ask, barely hiding my excitement, ignoring Kane's shift in mood. Because both of them were pregnant, two sources of blood, both tested positive for fertilization. My gara, Kane says, and turns back to the bar, away from Minu. What does that mean? I say to his back, then turning to Minu. Are you sure? Ninety-five percent sure, but I can run it again. She looks pleased with herself, but is already getting up to leave. No, you don't have to run it again. Kane grumbles without turning back around. But it does make things a lot more complicated. All right, well, I have a busy afternoon if you don't need me. I figured I'd let you know as soon as possible. She gets up and heads out into the street, the entire bar turning to watch her go, except Kane. She's gone so fast I can't even say goodbye. What does this mean? I ask Kane. It means we have a second body out there somewhere. Kane rubs his face, looking very tired all of a sudden. And no one has come to report anyone missing. So it's going to be hell trying to find and collect any sort of evidence from the scene when we finally do find it. A flash from the day before. Sitting. Sitting next to that woman waiting for her husband. The two women who came in the day before. The ones that smelled like swamp water. I think I have a lead. I can barely contain myself. Kane looks over at me, his expression weary. Oh yeah? Yesterday... While I was waiting for you, two women came into the office and told Baldy, I mean Cleto, about one of their friends that went missing. I look at Kane, his expression shifting from undoubting to annoyed. Why didn't he tell me about this? I don't want Baldy on my bad side, but we need to find the body. I think because they smelled. It sounds like an apology or an excuse when I say it. Smelled? Kane rests his chin in hand, like he's thinking, but his eyes betray that he already knows what I'm talking about. Like, the swamp? I try to clarify, and Kane groans. Then he looks out through the window of the bar, and seeing that the sun has already started to set, shakes his head, and gulps down the rest of his beer.
It's too late to go see the swamp people tonight, he mutters. The what? The swamp people. The ones you saw on those little hills in the park? I nod, slowly, letting him explain. They live there, because it's free, and because no one bothers them there. They're into stuff normal people, like you and I, would rather stay away from. Again, I pretend to understand what he's implying. Why can't we go now? I try to angle for information. What stuff am I not into? It gets a bit wild once the sun goes down. Drink up. There's not much we can do tonight, and you don't want to be at full capacity for where we're going tomorrow. He signals Jack for a fourth round. Then he looks back over at me, leans his head on his arm like before, but slower. His eyes, excruciating, perfect blue. Our mugs are refilled. My heart tugs in his direction. It strings, soaked with beer.